Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we've got another great episode lined up for today. Today's guest is the Director of Learning and Development at Pactive Evergreen, and her name is Abby Fordham. Welcome to the show, Abby. Hi, happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining me today. We had a great conversation in our preparation leading up to today, and I'm really looking forward to uh, sharing your wisdom with our audience today. As we uh, start that process, every time on this podcast, I want to ask you what you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge facing our deskless, deskless, deskless workers is the ability to access technology while outside of being in that deskless environment, we have every technology imaginable available to us. And yet when we go into our workplaces, uh, those of us that have access have no issues, but those of us that don't have that desk environment um, aren't given that same level of privilege, if you will. Um, and I think it's really becoming a challenge for organizations as well as employees to be able to do their jobs effectively. Yeah. Those of us with 12,000 emails in our inbox might not consider it a privilege. Right. <laughs> I know I do. There's, there, there's another side to that. Um, but but that's a, a really good point, just access to the technology period. Are there any examples that kind of stand out to you of things that you know of the, the frontline workers in your organization are really dying to have access to? Yeah, I think it's really access to their cell phones. Um, well, a lot of people, especially your HR organizations, and this isn't just in my own um, organization, but I've seen it out there reading um, at others. They they feel that they're just going to be checking Facebook or Instagram or one of the you know the many social media platforms or playing a game uh, with their friends. But if we were allowed access or to allow them to have access to their mobile technology, they'd be able to learn the way that they do when they're not at work. Uh, I know the last time I went to you know do something that I'd never done before, what did I do? I got out I got out my phone, googled it, and probably watched a YouTube video. Um, and if we could provide that same level of support for that deskless worker, I think it would be really big because again, there, while there are going to be your bad actors, there's always that 10 to 15% that are going to, you know, not follow the rules. Um, The rest of us, you know, want that, that access. Um, And so definitely something that I'm seeing right now um, as the argument, but not a good one. Yeah. I don't, I, you know, I'm biased. I've been in the mobile technology space for a long time. So I'm probably a little bit biased on that front too, but I agree with you. I think, you know, YouTube is the second um, most popular search engine, obviously supported by Google. So we either start off at Google or we go to YouTube when we're Mm -hmm. looking to learn how to do something we don't know how to do exactly as you described. And, And that traverses all age groups and all backgrounds. And yet, we aren't giving our the men and women on the front lines a similar experience in their work life. And you know, to, to me, the shame of that 
is that we're missing taking advantage of the path of least resistance, right? We There's the least change management, the least training. <laughs> if we can give them those types of experiences that are familiar because of social media, because of our experiences in the consumer world, it actually makes it that much easier for them to embrace those those capabilities internally. So it's it's a shame. And, and I think all of us need to do a better job in our organizations of, of exposing those capabilities to the men and women on the front lines, exactly as you described. And you're right. That's not to say, by the way, just to acknowledge something else that you said, that there won't be some bad actors, but those bad actors are doing bad things already, right? They're, they're right. probably going around the policy today anyway. Mm-hmm. So why hold it back for the other 85, 90 or 95% of the people that would be putting it to good use and, and be respectful of the policy? Absolutely. We should always solve for the majority, not the minority. Yeah, agreed. So let's um let's give the audience a little bit of understanding of who you are and where you came from. Tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you ended up in the role you're in today. Yeah, I have been in training, learning, and development for about the last um, 16 years or so in varying roles. I started out in the healthcare industry in pharmaceuticals, big pharma, and was actually a chemist by education. So Um, While I wasn't formally in learning, I took over all of the learning for our chemists and new chemists in the quality control lab that I worked at. So that was fun. Very different environment, but got to work as a frontline deskless worker um, on the line, essentially doing chemistry things and uh, ended up going into the quality organization um, at the same company I had been at at the time. And that's really where I got into learning more formally and then eventually took me into more formal learning and development roles, training manager within manufacturing facilities, um, and then setting up a centralized learning organization for that big pharma. And then decided I was ready to do it all over again and go meet where there was a big need for the deskless worker. That is definitely my forte and where I'm most motivated um, for providing that support and found uh, the company I'm at now. And so I'm now setting up that access and enablement at the uh, learning level for the deskless worker. So that is my priority. That's awesome. Is there something in your background that caused you to have this natural empathy for the men and women on the front lines? Like what, what caused you to want to pursue that as a challenge? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, That's one of my favorite ones. I, but having worked uh, two different times within actually in a manufacturing facility, Um, The first time, you know, being the chemist, I worked the off shift, um, definitely not meant to work in the middle of the night, uh, long term for my career, but seeing the lack of leadership and the lack of support, because it's very uh, limited people usually work on the night shifts at at manufacturing facilities, you have to figure it out. And what you're doing is you're learning from one another. Um, So I got to see that firsthand. And then I had the privilege of going back to that same manufacturing facility as a leader in the learning and development um, field. And when you have day-to-day, so you've got, you know, 50, 75 things that are getting thrown at you every day and you have to figure out which one is going to stick and what is the priority. And most days you have time to get one, maybe two of those things done on the list. And the, the whole entire facility is experiencing the same thing. And those priorities are not always the same unless, you know, say a regulator shows up that day. Um, it's about the only exception to the rule, but you're all trying to do the right thing and, and seeing them having to manage those priorities and those struggles, the more you can help those employees be able to do their job just 
I mean, absolutely motivating to me because they're coming in and doing the same thing everyone else is doing. They want to come in, they want to do the best they can, and they want to go home the same way that they came in to work um, with their, you know, health and safety components of the job as well. And learning is such a big component of that. Um, and so that became my focus. While salary always gets the benefits first, um, I like to go after those deskless, deskless workers um, because they don't always uh, aren't always seen as the priority, but I absolutely feel that they are. We can't do it without them. And they should get the same privileges the rest of the organization gets. Yeah. You know, one thing that I think was interesting about the terminology that we began using as a society is we started referring to many of these men and women as essential workers. Yeah. Because when the rest of society realized that we needed stuff, whether that stuff is public safety or retail or manufactured goods or whatever the case is, we started changing that terminology to essential workers. And I know that there were some kind of compliance things, you know, playing into that in terms of, you know, which buildings could open up and which ones couldn't. But it, I think that's a really important way to think about it because I think often the men and women on the front lines have um, not been thought of as essential as they really are, maybe just not thought of at all. And so this, you know, COVID, we, we don't, we haven't been talking about COVID a lot on the show. Finally, it's, you know, far enough in, our, in the rearview mirror, hopefully, knock on wood. But I, I do think it really changed things permanently about the way we think of, of many of the women, uh, men and women in these roles. You, you said something I, I'd like to clarify a little bit. You, you talked about lack of leadership because in, in the cases specifically where they're working, night shifts. Did you mean that the managers that were there lacked leadership skills or that there was a lack of managers on those shifts? And so there was a greater need for those individuals to make decisions on their own? Yeah, I think it's both. Um, I, and both in that experience that I had then, as well as what I've seen over the years working in other facilities. Um, I think it varies depends on the people for when it comes to lacking the skills. Um, more often than not, it's not because they want to lack the skills, it's because they're not given the opportunity to build them. Yeah. So often do we see uh, one of those deskless workers performing so well on the job and they assume, we assume so many times, oh, they're going to be great as the supervisor. I'm going to make them the team lead. I'm going to put them in charge of this line. And this person who has worked for 15, 20 years on that particular line with the same people is now their boss, essentially, but we lack to give them those leadership skills um, or don't prioritize the fact that they might need those leadership skills and they're taking on the additional challenge of now being in charge of the people that were their peers and that you need a lot of support when you're in that space. Um, and then also night shifts predominantly are skeleton staff. You don't have trainers. If you do have trainers, they're, you know, an operator that's being begged to pay an extra dollar an hour or two, right? So that they can do the training. The turnover and retention is so ridiculous right now that those trainers don't want the extra money because they don't want to have to keep doing it over and over and over again. So I definitely see both. Um, both are equally in my mind needs um, to focus on within an organization, right? Both making sure your leaders have what they need and supported as well as your, your deskless workers and making sure that you have the right um, balance of staff and people available to them. It's really interesting that you just talked about having a hard time even recruiting internal folks to take potentially extra pay 
for a responsibility that right now is very unappealing. How are you solving that? Um, we're definitely looking at a lot of different things with a, from a retention standpoint. So both recruiting, making sure we're getting the right talent um, in the right roles, uh, looking once they get in-house, making sure they're being onboarded standard, standard across the organization, um, looking to build the leadership skills so that the leaders are welcoming. Uh, they learn their employees' names um, and others, right? Create that welcoming environment. Um, and then making sure that the trainers have what they need. So whether it's a train the trainer or uh, dedicating them to the role, depending on the size of the facility, it might mean you actually need dedicated trainers and not have you know, employees that have to come off the line. Um, I've seen some where the job, you know, is an entry-level position. It's one of the easier ones to learn. They take, they are considered trainers um, because if they, if they do it, not only do they get paid more, but they get an extra set of hands for that shift because they have the trainee with them doing whatever the task is um, so that they can complete it faster. And so in that sense, if we can convince them, you know, it's a benefit, but then you have the people who really don't want to train because it's not their, you, you know, you need, you need to be a personable person if you're a trainer. Um, and sometimes uh, folks are voluntold to do the training. And then it just continues that negative environment that you don't really want for either the, the, the trainee or the trainer. Yeah. I appreciate you talking about this, this frontline leadership challenge. It's something that is coming up more and more often on the podcast, maybe a little bit impacted by the amount of turnover experienced in, in those parts of the organization. It's kind of made the light bulb go off for me that the importance of that frontline leadership is so paramount to the success of everything. I'm very involved in technology deployments and support around that in my day job. And we see that being really important there, but it's obviously important across the board. And yet those folks probably get the least support from a leadership development standpoint, as do knowledge workers in corporate who are afforded additional classes and additional e-learning access and, and other things that are, that are afforded to them that we may not give to the men and women on the front lines. Why do you think that is? Well, why do you think that's missed so much it, it, because it kind of feels like we're in consensus that it's a critical role. How can it be agreed that that's such a critical role and yet at the same time be so underinvested from a talent development standpoint? That's such a great question. If I had the answer and, and was paid for it, I'd probably be very rich, but I'm going to give you my best, my yeah. best um, opinion on it. So definitely something I have equally recognized and dealt with over the years and continue to come back to it. I think it's a multitude of um, issues that kind of collide into one and create this um, lack of prioritization for this particular work group, which shows, right, with the, especially with the retention. I think, and I've said this for years, it is probably the hardest position in a manufacturing organization, regardless of what product you're making is that frontline supervisor or frontline leader. Um, they have the most employees, no matter where you are, they always have the most people reporting to them. They're dealing with everything from, you know, someone looked at me funny yesterday on the line or today to, 
right? I've got a major injury. Someone's been hurt. I've got to now take care of this to everything in between, right? Line breaks, machines are down, whatever the case is. Um, and they're the ones responsible for figuring it out. Um, so they're dealing with people. They're dealing with all of the things that come with dealing with people. There's the dealing with the equipment, the product, the machines, the process. And then there's also dealing with, um, I lost what the other one was that I said, um, with the people coming in. Oh, the amount of people, right? They just have that many, the schedules, everything. They're responsible for all of it. And um, we constantly don't give the support. And I think where it falls short or what I have seen over the years, um, no matter where I've been, a lot of people that are in the position to make those decisions have never worked in manufacturing. They've never reported in to a plant or manufacturing facility and had to live in that environment, no matter what position they had, whether it was, you know, an operator on the floor or even, you know, an HR manager or a leader within the facility, you still experience such a different life when you're in that plant. Um, and so too many people are making decisions on their behalf that don't have that experience or have forgotten it. Um, I've also seen that as well. And um, the voices really should be coming from those frontline supervisors. When I've seen successful programs or processes or anything that's being rolled out, when they have taken the time to go talk to those frontline leaders or supervisors, you usually have exactly what they're asking for at the end of the day. Um, if you don't, you roll out something that someone at a desk has decided is the best, not to say they don't have great ideas and strategy and, you know, they do have direction that needs to be given, but within those confines, we should be tailoring it to the needs of those um, supervisors because they are the future. They're the future of the organization. They're the future of our ability to retain and continuing producing whatever it is that um, the manufacturing facility is, is on point for. Yeah. Too many examples come to mind about the disconnect between knowledge workers making decisions about folks out in the plant or, or in another kind of frontline facility. Anything come to mind about where you may have witnessed something where you felt like, hey, you know, if, if this person had spent a little bit of time, that would have been so obvious for them to, to not do it that way? Yes. Uh, years ago, uh, there was a facility that had some uh, unwanted attention from some regulatory bodies. Uh, as you recall, I mentioned I was in pharma. So, you know, the people you don't want hanging around, um, but they're there to keep us and the patient safe. So the products and um, a lot of issues at the facility, a lot of attention was brought in from different groups and, you know, the corporate groups and they get a, they get a lot of extra hands that they didn't want. And one of the issues was training. And so I was involved as well as some other team members and we're trying to figure out, you know, why is the training so bad? And um, they start looking at the procedures and the processes and the training materials. And they're like, you know, everything looks fine. Like you have everything you're supposed to, everyone's passing, they're qualified, right? Nothing's wrong. Well, someone, and it was, it was not me. It was my colleague. I believe I was with them and they're like, well, let's go out. They'll let us go out on the floor. Let's go talk to some of the employees. So we went out and started asking them, right. Straight up asking them, you know, what, how is training? You know, what do you think your trainers, how's the program? And they couldn't talk to us. So we were like, what do you mean? They can't talk to us. And someone else that was nearby, they came over and they're like, oh, they're like, you need the trainer 
go find the trainer, she'll translate for you. So we didn't realize that they didn't speak English. Um, and they came back to us and they're like, oh, we're so sorry. We didn't realize you guys were going out, you know, let me translate for you. So they started translating and we were like, how many of your workers don't, English is not their first language. And it was a majority of the deskless workers were non-English speaking. And we had no material, no process materials, no procedures, no nothing was translated and no one had bothered to ask. Should we? So when they had something go wrong, they had to rely on someone else to give that direction. And sometimes, you know, people aren't available and they couldn't go and use the procedures and the materials that they actually, you know, were created and on hand for them because it wasn't translated in their native language. Um, and so that was just a simple task of understanding your audience or understanding the environment and could have been solved very, was solved very quickly at that point, translated everything. Um, Right. So there was that self-help component, which really should be there as well as the training itself. That is a fantastic example and a great story. And I'm sorry that you had to suffer through that uh, in order to share that story with us today. But I, I appreciate you sharing it because I think this is something that has always been an issue. It's something that has come up often lately as organizations are scrambling to fill positions on the front lines and maybe reducing some of their requirements about English speaking, right. In order to get somebody into a planner or to a supply chain operation somewhere. Right. Yep. And it's, it's such an easy thing to overlook and it's a pain in the ass and it's complicated and it's costly to do translations, you know, from an L and D standpoint, but you know, you're setting yourselves up and setting these new hires up to fail. I'm saying new hires, cause I'm thinking about it mostly in terms of just trying to replenish right. the workforce. It's obviously always been a problem if you have people that are, you know, not English speaking as their primary language to, to give them the added benefit of being able to learn things that are new and complex to them, but not have to be learning a second language at the same time or, or strained by using a second language. Again, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's relatively a simple way to stack the odds in your favor mm -hmm. by ensuring success for them and then therefore the organization at the same time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Another example I had more recently was with the, the translation piece with trainers, trainers that are dual language and can speak the other language um, at the particular facility. And while most people assume it is the trainer needs to speak the other language for those that don't have English as their first language, but we've had the opposite where they end up getting paired with someone who only speaks English and that there isn't an English speaking trainer available and just being in that environment, whichever way it is, right. I only know one, one language, unfortunately, and I can only imagine if I started on a job and I met my trainer and they're supposed to be teaching me how to run a machine or do something and, you know, not lose my fingers and they cannot speak the same language I am speaking. I would be absolutely terrified. And that is a retention issue that I've seen, uh, you know, ev everywhere I've seen, every article I've read, that is one of the contributing factors. So it is definitely a big, I think, not to say it's an easy win, but something that is constantly overlooked. They, well, like you said, they change the requirements for a position and language speaking, but they forget to change the, all the processes around it, right? The yeah. training the procedures, the documentation, everything would need to be translated. I, it, it comes up a lot. 
it's not, it, these are examples of things that are simple, but not easy. Mm-hmm. Meaning that we're not talking about, you know, re-engineering machinery in your plant. We're talking right. about translations. There's proven processes for how to handle this, especially from an L&D standpoint. Mm-hmm. It, it's just, it's not easy. It's not free. There is some cost associated with it, but I think we need to do a better job of first, just even asking the question, is this potentially an issue? And your example is a perfect one. I mean, in a, in a perfect world, that would have been discovered long before the regulator showed up and right. you, you understood that you had a problem on your hands, right? I know yeah. hindsight's 2020, yeah. but you know, for everybody that's listening and for all of us that are involved in, in new initiatives and programs going forward, that's something that we need to bring front and center and, and be asking those questions out of the gate. Because I, I feel like there's so many circumstances where we're setting the organization up to fail by not digging in deep enough, by not being curious and asking those questions. And then it, it begs the question, you know, if, if we're not prepared to do that, okay, that may be one thing, but then we shouldn't be hiring people that don't, aren't completely fluent in, in the language, right? You, you can't do, you know, one without the other. So if we're going to accept that we're bringing in folks where English isn't their native language, that's okay, but we have to support them properly or we're setting up everything to fail. It's, it's actually not going, it's going to solve the, the recruiting problem in the very short term, but it's actually going to kick right. off and snowball and create other downstream implications as you just shared. Absolutely. No, and on the flip side of that, both when you're hiring, making sure that you have the, the capabilities and the skill set and the folks that you bring in or retain, um, but also I do this. Uh, habit I learned from my last organization, we were much larger footprint globally um, and had 20 plus languages we had to account for 10 or the core. Every vendor I talk to, right? Anytime I'm bringing in off the shelf content, anytime I'm working with anything that is delivering something, anything that is bringing in, you know, anything in the learning space that is vendor related, always the first question. And I do it here while we don't have as many languages, um, and I have run into vendors that the, after the first call, they can't answer my translation questions or they say, oh, you know, the system is capable, but you have to do those translations. And it's an immediate, you know, I don't have the resources for that. So, you know, next, I'll move on to the next one. Um, so also on the leaders that are bringing the technology, bringing the resources, bringing the vendors in to support an organization also making sure that you're doing your due diligence there um, to have the right, again, the right resources for the employees. Yeah. I'd, I'd really love to explore this translation topic with you a little bit further. And I have some selfish motivations uh, due to my day job that's causing me to really want to understand this better from your vantage point. So you just said something that if a vendor were to say to you, the technology offers the ability to support localization, but the expectation is that you do it on your own. I am one of those technology vendors that might say that to our prospects and customers, right? And so I'm, I'm really curious to hear that. And, and I'll tell you why I'm, I'm so curious, because we have heard from some of the large corporations that we deal with that they already have translation services either in-house, mm-hmm. they have a third-party company that they've contracted with, that they have a longstanding relationship with, or now we're starting to hear more uses of technology 
that has been perhaps customized for that corporation. So the technology understands their corporate jargon and things like that. And is, and they've made decisions on how they're going to translate that globally. But if you're bringing in another component in your L and D tech stack, do you want also another version of those translations? Like why wouldn't you want to standardize on a third party service to do the translations? Yeah, no, that is absolutely ideal. The catch there is you have to be part of an organization that that is the priority and been established. Um, My previous organization did have that. That was an initiative during a a big transformation. And one of the things that, uh, you know, translations became a very big deal. Those vendors were brought in. The technology was updated, right? We have our library, huge consolidation because I think we had hundreds of vendors at one point, right? Yeah. To a translation. Sure. It's not good from a cost perspective. Right. Um, brought it or down consistency. to that core. Right. Oh my right. gosh, the consistency. Like you would have them translate, this service would do this translations and you're not getting that library for your organization because it's very, right. very critical. You have that jargon that is very specific to your processes and you're yeah. paying again and again and again and again with all these different vendors. So while the importance is there, the organization has to have it. So mine does not have that right now. Um, and I know that. And so for me, I need a vent. I, I can't wait, right? While the organization I'm sure is going to be working on it, there's other things that are more pressing. And so for me, I'm going to pay to have it done for me. And then we'll figure out that transformation and consolidation in the future when that comes around. But I don't want to have to wait for it, right? Um, especially from a technology standpoint, a lot of work to do in the technology space, a lot of opportunity um, and wouldn't want to have to bring in a resource or group or start to do that standardization while also trying to do all this other stuff. I would pay to have a vendor do it for me. That, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I think it speaks to when I think about some of the organizations with whom we've had this conversation they're probably farther along in terms of their maturity in terms of you know support of localization in the example in you know the the previous organization that you worked with having 20 languages 10 of them being core like those things rolled right off your tongue which tells me that was a a part of your internal communication all the time and so you're really developing that as a competency in the organization because you believe it's part of the foundation of how you're going to deliver quality, you know, learning experiences for everybody in the organization. Yeah. So that's that's great. And it's not to sound critical of organizations that aren't there yet, but you know, we've all got our priorities of the problems that we're trying to solve at, exactly. at you know, depending on where the business is and its life cycle, right? Yeah. And um, so it, it's interesting to hear you talk about that with that level of sophistication. And and you know. Even organizations are in different phases of just where they're at, even rolling out technology to the men and women on the front lines. So an organization that's rolling out tech to the manufacturing floor and supply chain operations for the first time are still very early in their maturity there. Translations might still be important, but not as important as getting the initial technology off the ground. Right. And we can only solve so many problems at one time, I, I suspect. Yeah, absolutely. And the way I tackle that and how I've seen things for a number of years is right, all those departments, we all have to collaborate. We all have to work together and we have our critical few priorities. But then in addition, we all have our own initiatives to drive where I'm technology, for an example, let's say 
there's a little bit more work that has to be done in the technology space for me to be able to implement something to a deskless worker from a learning technology standpoint. I'm not going to let that stop me from delivering a solution. Just might either take me longer or I will prioritize something else in the interim while also getting that commitment and alignment with the folks on other teams that I need, right, to make that work while also making sure I understand why we need to take a little bit longer because then I'm better educated on, okay, how am I playing into that project that's being worked on? Because, okay, I understand why we have to wait, you know, another six months or whatever the case is before we move forward. Okay, in the interim, I'm going to work on the translations, right? I'm going to go get the materials translated so when we're ready to roll out. We've got stuff in all the languages, right? There's always there's always a solution to be found and there's always something to be working on. I never let no be a, be a roadblock or a stop. It's a, okay, it's a yes and, right? It's a yes and how are we going to do that? When's it going to happen? What can I do in the meantime? How can I help you? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's great. D- digging back in maybe a little bit further into your past where you were in an organization that had already deployed a lot of technology with the men and women on the front lines, you know, specifically around some of the the manufacturing processes and stuff. Are there any best practices, good experiences that you have that you recall of ways that you were able to really help support the frontline workers with new technology that was coming down, down the pipe? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Really rolling up uh, my sleeves and getting dirty, meaning going to the facility, um, working with the operators, asking them to bring the folks that are the best at the job, the ones that the others listen to, those are the people that you want. You bring them in, you teach them what it is you're trying to do. They ask a million questions, which are all amazing. I learned so much from those engagements, making modifications based on the questions or the suggestions that they're making building whatever that training is or the technology implementation and taking what they're doing into account and then letting them lead the rollout or implementation at their particular facility or within their line or group. Um, Literally the sky's the limit because I am not staying, right? I get to go home. I get to go to the next facility. I get to go somewhere else and do it again. They're the ones that have to do this every day. So it should work for them and they know how to do their jobs the best. And if you let them champion the implementation and the rollout, it's going to be more successful than you even imagined before going into the facility. And the more that can be replicated, regardless of what it is you're rolling out, um, the more successful uh, projects and implementations would be, especially in the technology space. That all makes a lot of sense to me. Did, Did you experience any issues with consistency? when you were asking for support from each local site, that that's one thing that I've heard. And I'm curious to get your take on it. Whereas when we're kind of training the trainer, creating super users at each site that we may end up in a scenario where each site is being informed slightly differently. And so when we look at the use of those systems in aggregate, we may find that it's not consistent across all of those locations. Did you experience that at all? Yeah, definitely. Um, experienced it, still experiencing it, all different variations and forms. Um, where I have found success in that space and to try to drive consistency, making sure you understand at the core what you want your standard to be, what your minimum requirements are, um, having that agreement across the business or across the, the facilities that you're looking to implement at 
making sure it's very clear that this is going to be the standard and then, and then letting the rest go, right? You have to say, this is my core. This is what I'm okay with. The rest of it, I'm going to leave that autonomy up to you. And then what takes it even another step further is if you can create a community um, with those facilities and people, even though they might not be in the same location, but allowing that space for them to share, they will start to learn and talk to one another and learn that they're actually doing things the same or differently, but could do them the same. And then you have that best practice sharing. And usually you end up creating even more standards from that. Um, uh, but it just is another method to allow them to work together. Um, where you, where I see it fail and have seen it fail time and time again is when that agreement is not made up front for what that minimum requirement or standards needs set needs to be and controlling everything from A to Z. If you are trying to control A to Z and you don't have a good business case for it, because it's just because that's what you thought needed to be done, it's going to fail because someone's not going to follow it because it doesn't work. It doesn't work at that facility there right? Their button's green instead of blue. How are they supposed to push a blue button if it's supposed to be green, right? Those kind of things you have to, so that's where it's truly understanding, involving the people on the floor, and then having that minimum set of requirements and agreement across the board um, will be more successful. Yeah, I think those are, are really great points. One of the things you just reminded me of when you were explaining that is that many modern application vendors brag about all of the flexibility in their software and might say things like, oh, well, there are a few ways you can solve that inside the software. In fact, our software that I represent during my day job, we have, there are multiple ways to do things in that software. And that actually adds, it has the potential to add some complexity from uh, an implementation standpoint, as if there are three ways that you can go through a particular workflow, then what is the one that we're going to train the team on? Or are we going to train them on all three? And, and I've been a part of some of those debates about what's the best way to educate them. And you, you just made me think about something, which is to set the minimum standard and say, well, this is what you have to get done. There are more than, you know, there's more than one way to do this. We're going to show you this way. But if the groups decide that they want to use that software slightly differently, but we're still getting to the same end result, who cares? You know, like we got to exactly. kind of pick our battles a little bit. I, I think that's a good perspective that I hadn't yes. really thought about as much. I it's think it's taken I might, a long time for me to get there for sure. Yeah. I wasn't like this always. <laughs> I might be biased towards wanting that consistency just because of kind of, you know, OCD or whatever, just wanting to see it, it all happening the same way. But in the end, you do have to pick your battles. And I love the point that you've made about just establishing what those, you know, expectations are, and then just, you know, relieving yourself of the rest. Right. Um, Cause there, and I understand consistency and I understand the importance of that, especially coming from the pharma industry, you have to follow procedure and the way things need to be done. Um, but I was able to successfully see from a training space where we could set a minimum standard and then allow, right, that autonomy to be for the particular product, manufacturing location, whatever it was, like gowning, for example, how do you gown? Um, well, everyone does it basically the same, depending on what class room you're going into, right? Wearing the full, you know, Breaking Bad bunny suits, if right. you will. Um, but every facility has a different supplier of those suits. They look different. The bins might be different in the room that they're going into, where the chair is located. It might be on the left side of the room instead of the right side of the room. 
allowing them to customize to their needs, but having the core of you have to do step A before step B before step C and that being all you require, the rest of it, right? The photos, the things that they do for their training, allowing them to make those changes for them. Huge success when we did that and said, okay, we're gonna give you the proper requirements, the things you have to do, everything else you need to customize for your facility and you get to do it. You get to figure out how it works for your, your site and it was very successful. That's excellent. Yeah. And it makes them feel empowered a little bit. I imagine too, that they're not just oh, having yeah. this thing crammed down their throat from headquarters. Exactly. Uh, my least favorite thing. That's why I came back into corporate was because I knew I could make a bigger impact having worked in manufacturing multiple times to be that voice on their behalf and making sure that if anything I am working on, I go to the, the operators. I go to the floor. Yeah. That's awesome. We're, we're coming up to the end already, if you can believe that. Oh, um, so these fast. conversations always seem to go really quickly. Um, I'd like to just kind of wrap up with one more topic, and, and that is, you know, the name of the show is Frontline Innovators. So we're talking about technology uh, as it relates to the men and women on the front lines. I'm curious, what are interesting learning technologies that you've been reading about, hearing about, seeing that are piquing your interest in, in maybe you're, you know, researching further just for personal curiosity or for the needs of the business or whatever the case may be. Yeah, absolutely. So shifting from uh, two big, two big technologies come to mind, shifting from learning the traditional learning management system, record keeping to the learning experience platforms. Mm -hmm. um, so excited where that is headed. Um, although the vendors seem to be cannibalizing one another right now um, out in that industry, but for the big players, at least, but going from that traditional, this is just an electronic record instead of a paper record, because we all know we're trying to get rid of paper still. Um, it, it's tailoring and using the AI and artificial intelligence and those things to suit your learners' needs. So if you can solve for getting the deskless workers, especially your frontline um, employees, the access to that technology, let the technology do that hard work for you and tailor learning and development to them. You can always meet the minimum requirements and compliance needs of a job, but where can we take it from there? And that's where the learning experience platforms are super uh, innovative and exciting um, and definitely worth the money. The second piece is on the content development side. So being able to bring in technology that anyone can use. I like to call it TikTok in the workplace, um, but being able to create TikToks, but not using TikTok. Um, cause you know, never going to get that approved, um, but being able to use the technology and I've seen quite a few out there that allow anyone essentially with a cell phone or an iPad or something that can record a video to go out, record a video, do some quick, right? If I can create a TikTok at home, I should be able to do that at work and then being able to apply it, especially when it's in manufacturing can, right. I have a belt that breaks once a year. Can I get technology to record that video this time around. It's two minutes, get it loaded into our system so that other people can see it in a year when it breaks again. And it's someone else on the line um, and being able to use that to our advantage. Those are the two most exciting technologies I've seen that I'm watching. I, I particularly love the example of, of the TikTok in the workplace. And have you found any tech that you found particularly interesting in, in that space? Or are you just beginning the research process of, of looking for potential vendors there? Beginning the research, beginning that space. Uh, there's one that I've heard of that's called Bytes um, that I've been following on LinkedIn. They seem to be uh, very 
advanced, if you will, in that space from what yeah. I'm seeing, but others are, I'm starting to see others bubble up. Once you like one, they all start calling you. So amazing how that happens, isn't it? Right. <laughs> Speaking of social media, that is exactly how things happen. You search for one and you start getting ads from five others, right? Right. Um, so that actually is a great way maybe for us to, to kind of wrap it up. I'm, I'm curious to hear how you are learning about new technology that is interesting for you and the problems that you're solving in your business. You just mentioned LinkedIn. Is mm-hmm. that Would you consider that a primary source? Are you going to Google and just searching for things? Are you looking for... I'm going to say kind of influencers, but, you know, thought leaders in this space for, for their guidance. How are you finding those new, new ideas? Yeah. So most of mine is on LinkedIn, probably 99% of my research is done in LinkedIn. Um, I do get a lot of emails uh, in my inbox and direct messages on LinkedIn. I will say if the vendor gets my company name wrong, I don't respond. Um, So if whatever technology they're using to send me a spam message, if they could fix it to get the company name right, they're going to get my response. Um, so it's twofold. Sometimes I'm just reading articles and posts and groups that I'm following or, or uh, thought leaders in that space that I'm following and I'll you know, go down a rabbit hole or uh, something will come up at work and I'll remember something that I've read or a message that I've received and then I'll go back and find them and say, hey, I know you've been, you reached out a few months ago. I'm now, you know, someone in the business is asking for this, doing it in the safety space right now. Now I'm going back to those vendors that originally reached out. Um, and now I'm making that connection instead of, right. I don't have time to engage with all of them. There's a lot of messages. Yeah. I, I feel it too. You know, we, <laughs> we are, uh, you know, in my day job, we are also marketing and, and trying to promote the problems that we solve in, in the market that we serve and all of that kind of stuff. But I'm also on the receiving end of an absolute boatload of spam. Sure. And sometimes it just makes me shake my head. You know, some of it is, is interesting. And every once in a while, you know, we, we've engaged with folks that have had some kind of cold outreach, but probably 99% of the time it's, you know, you see people don't really even put any thought into what they're spamming us with. Right. That's right. pretty frustrating. Yeah. And uh, well, I appreciate you sharing that perspective. And and I also am on LinkedIn a lot and I, I like to share as much as I can, but I probably learn uh, far more than I'm able to share on LinkedIn. I, I do find it to be a great resource. And if you really kind of craft your feed around who you're following and yes. who you're commenting and who you're paying attention to, obviously the algorithms are helping us get more and more of the things that we're engaging with. So it does seem to kind of build on itself. Yes. It also means it's, you know, you'll probably get more sponsored ads about those same topics, but, but that's actually helpful. That's meaningful. If I'm searching for technology to create TikTok ads and bites competitors are also, you know, putting ads in front of you, that's actually helpful, right? In that case, it makes the advertising at least worthwhile. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. We are, I don't know if this uh, podcast is going to drop before this, but another thing that we're doing is we're going to be in DevLearn in Vegas um, next week. It'll be my first time at that conference. It'll be the first time Skillful is going to be represented there. So this podcast may actually be coming out after DevLearn's over. And even if you're not already registered to go, it's probably too late to, uh, you know, pack your bags and get out. But uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, You know, we're one of those technology vendors in that space, but I also am trying to learn more about the market, learn about new translation technologies as an example that might be complementary to to our business. And so uh, I'm really curious about how others in the space are learning. So for anybody that's listening to the podcast, um, outside of, of Abby and me right now, I, I would love to hear you share on LinkedIn or, or tell us where you're learning 
about new technology. I've been engaging with a bunch of the folks in the Frontline Innovators Council, um, trying to figure out you know, where these forums are so that we can all continue to learn and, and be better prepared to, to solve the problems that we need to solve each day. So, well, Abby, thank you so very much for taking the time uh, with us today. I've really enjoyed the conversation and uh, I know our audience has as well. So thank you so much for, uh, for carving out some time to visit with me today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I have enjoyed it very much. Excellent. All right. Well, you have to wrap it up there. Um, for all of our audience, if you found this conversation as enjoyable as I have, please give us a good rating on Apple Podcast or on YouTube. Uh, Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are out innovating on the front lines. Remember, this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skyllful.com. And we're always looking for new guests on the show. So if you or someone you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story or refer me to someone else. And uh, hopefully we'll get them on the next episode. Abby, thanks again for your time today. Thank you. 